Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So if you're there in Haggai, uh, in chapter 1, so first of all, well, who was Haggai? Well, he's one of the minor prophets. You know, the only reason why they call him minor is not that they're insignificant. They're just minor because it's just one of the smaller books, uh, one of the smaller prophet uh, books as compared to like Daniel or something. Um, so anyways, but Haggai is unique in that he was one of the post-exile prophets. What I mean by that is the Israelites... They have been taken into Babylonian captivity. Zephaniah, the book that we just studied, was the last of the, uh, of the pre-exile prophecies uh, for the nation of Judah. And uh, <clears throat> so by the time that this book Haggai was written, uh, the Jews had already been taken into Babylonian captivity. And they went into Babylonian captivity in three successive stages. In 605 B.C. was the first group that was taken into captivity. Then later in 597 B.C. another group was taken into captivity. And finally in 586 B.C., culminating basically with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, was when the last group, the last remnant, uh, went into Babylonian captivity. So they went in three successive stages, but it's interesting, they came out in three successive stages as well. Um, The Israelites returned from exile in three successive stages. First, under the leadership of Zerubbabel in uh, 538 B.C., and then under the leadership of Ezra in 548 B.C., and then as a lot of you women know, because you just studied Nehemiah, under the leadership of Nehemiah in 444 B.C. So the events that's taking place that we're going to be reading about this morning, it takes place between the first and the second um, return of the uh, remnant of the exiles to Jerusalem. And uh, if, if you're studying this book, as, of course, I had to study to prepare, um, the book of Ezra really gives a lot of background to what takes place just prior to this story, and actually including the, the, the prophecies of Haggai. Uh, so what is the background? Well, in 538 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple. That alone was a miracle. Uh, his name is, was prophesied like 400 years or so before he even was born, and, and it's just an amazing thing. Um, but anyway, so the Jews were finally able, after 70 years had passed in exile, they're finally able to go back to Jerusalem. Now picture this. An entire generation of children had been born and had grown up in exile. They didn't really know. I mean, they heard about Jerusalem. They heard about the old country, you know, but they, they'd never experienced it. And many of the Jews that had been in exile, they really, they put down roots or roots, depending on where you're from. But anyways, they, they, had, they had settled down. They had, you know, they had homes. They had, you know, acquaintances. They had friends. They had families. And uh, so a lot of them were really kind of comfortable in exile. It wasn't really that bad. And so a lot of them, when, they, when the decree went out that they could go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the, t- the temple, a lot of them didn't want to leave. In fact, the majority of them 
didn't want to leave. They liked it there. I mean, it was comfortable. Um, if you were going back to Jerusalem, it was kind of like pioneer days, man. You were going to go back. It's all rubble, you know, and you're going to go back there. It's not, you don't have the comforts of home. There's no 7-Elevens on the corner. Nothing. I mean, you're just, that's it, you know. You're going to go out there, and it would be, it would be a hard uh, beginning again for them. And so only about 50,000 Jews returned with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And they're known as the remnant that went back. Now, Zerubbabel and those returning Jews had King Cyrus's blessing. He had gone into this coffers or whatever, the storage rooms or whatever, and he had returned to Zerubbabel the gold and silver articles that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the Babylonians, when they first went into captivity, he had removed all that stuff from the temple. And so King Cyrus of the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, he gave that stuff back to Zerubbabel and said, here, take it with you. A lot of gold. It's it's recorded in Ezra how much. It was a lot of gold. And not only that, but the returning Jews had favor with the people around him. And so many people contributed financially to the cause of rebuilding the temple. It was like a mission trip, basically. And so, you know, things look very promising and very joyous for that remnant going back. What an exciting time, finally going back to Jerusalem, finally get to rebuild the temple. And so when they arrived in Jerusalem, the very first thing they did was they built an altar so that they could begin to offer the daily sacrifices, the morning and the evening you know, burnt offerings and all the other sacrifices. That was the very first thing they were able to do. And because they had money and they, things were going pretty good, they hired masons and carpenters along with the people from Tyre and Sidon to bring them cedar logs. I mean, they're going to do this thing right. You know, they're starting to, to, to work on it. And so they finished rebuilding the foundation of the temple. And then something happened. You see, when they went back into the land, the land wasn't uninhabited. Oh, it was rough, and it was destroyed and everything, but it wasn't uninhabited. There were people living in the land. In fact, in the book of Ezra, it calls them adversaries that were in the land. When the Jews went into exile, you know, the Babylonians, when they went into exile, uh, the Judah, uh, the, the inhabitants of Judah went into exile. And also before that, when the Assyrians, the ten northern tribes, went into Assyrian captivity, not everybody went into captivity. The, those armies, they left the poorest of the Jews, the very poorest, the very weakest, they left them in the land, basically. They didn't, they didn't want them, basically, so they left them there. They, and uh, so those people were still in the land when the rest of them went into captivity. In the case of the Assyrian exile, the Assyrian king Esar Haddon, or I don't know, Esar, whatever the guy's name, we'll call him Esau. No, we won't call him Esau. Eshardon, whatever. Anyways, um, that king, the king of Assyria, not only did he leave the poorest Jews in the land, but he re- relocated other people from other nations to come into the land after it was vacated from the Jews. And so there were all these different nations that were relocated into the land. And over the 70-year period, a lot of them, they, re, they kind of like intermarried with the Jews that were there, the remaining Jews. The, result in, uh, the results of that, uh, the people that were left there became known later as the Samaritans. When you get to the New Testament, you read about the Samaritans and how the Jews hated the Samaritans. These were those people, the descendants of those people. In Jesus' day, they were hated so much. They were considered half-breeds ethnically, because technically they were, but they were also considered half-breeds spiritually. 
Why did they were they considered considered that? Well, in the book of Second Kings, chapter seventeen, it kind of gives us a little bit of a clue, and I'm going to read this to you. Second Kings seventeen, verse twenty-four. It says, "Then the king of Assyria brought people from uh, Babylon, Cuthah, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim." And placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and, re- and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among us, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. And the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. See, they always thought about local deities. That's kind of the way they looked at it. Then one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities where they dwelt, the men of Babylon made Sakoth benoth That's the name of their idol that they made. The men of Cuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites, Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in fire to Adremelech and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvaim. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. So if you, if you understand what happened, the, the, you know, these lions are destroying the people. They're, they're like, we've ticked off the God of this land, and so we don't know how to serve them. And so the king of Assyria says, well, we'll send one of the priests down and teach him how to serve the Lord. And so they did that. And uh, so, but in addition to that, they were still worshiping their other idols. So they were, there was idolatry, basically. And so from this account, you get an idea of the spiritual condition of the Samaritans. Of course, they weren't called that then, but later on they'd be called that. You get kind of an idea of their spiritual heritage. So when the returning Jews under Zerubbabel's leadership came back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple, Ezra tells us what happens. In Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, so the, you get the picture that, you know, they're, they're coming back into the land. They're going to rebuild the temple. Why did they go into captivity? 
because of they had been in, they had been steeped in idolatry, and so for seventy years they went into exile as a result of that. They came out. The nation, by and large, was cleansed of idolatry. They they weren't going to worship idols anymore because they knew what they had just suffered. So they come here, and now these idol worshippers say, "Hey, we want to help you build the temple." And so they said, "They you know they go, we've been we've been worshiping the god just as you have." Well, not really, because they, there wasn't a temple, there wasn't an altar. They were worshiping to God in their own way, but they were also worshiping to all these idols. They weren't sacrificing to God as God commanded. The reality was they were idolaters. And the returning captives, because they knew that they had gone into exile because of idolatry, there's no way they were going to sin against the Lord by allowing them to join them in the building of the temple. You know, that that whole story kind of reminds me of when Paul and Silas, remember when they were at Philippi? And Paul, you know, they're, they're, they're missionaries. They're, they're trying to uh, reach people for Jesus Christ there. And there's this demon-possessed slave girl following them around every day, saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation, which was true. But Paul was getting, he was getting upset. He's like, man, they were, it was agonizing. It was annoying him. And the Bible tells us Paul was greatly annoyed and one day he commanded the demon to come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ, and the demon left. And, of course, then they were persecuted as a result of that. But Paul didn't need that type of free advertising. And when those idolaters, those Samaritans, as they would later be called, came to Zerubbabel and the Jews, they didn't want to partner with idolaters in rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And the Samaritans, they probably, in fact, they, they, it kind of reveals that they did have alternative motives. You know, they probably just wanted to absorb those returning Jews into their way of life. And it became evident where their heart was, because when Zerubbabel turned them down for helping, they quickly joined the rest of Israel's adversaries in opposing the rebuilding effort. I mean, it was just like that. All of a sudden, they became the enemies. It's funny. Uh, when we were first uh, starting out as a church, and I still get the phone calls, but I remember in the beginning, I mean, I get, as soon as we were in the phone book, you know, we're... ABC, you know, we're kind of low or high up on the, on the list of, of churches to call. We get calls all the time from people asking for money coming through. They're just, you know, you know, they're not part of the fellowship. They just call and say, hey, I've got, and they give you this story, and I need some money. And uh, I really used to struggle with it. And I remember a couple times, you know, just really praying about it and saying, man, Lord, should I be helping all these people? They, they're, the stories almost always was the same, you know, I have a real sad story. I mean, no, no doubt about it. But usually I said, well, you know, are you from around here? Do you belong to a church? Oh, no, I'm just passing through. Okay, well, do you belong to any kind of a church? Oh, no, no, I've, you know. And so after a while, it's like, well, you know what? I, I can't help you. And some of those people, the minute you said no to them, man, their hearts all of a sudden was revealed. All of a sudden they're cursing you on the phone. I know, Christians, you guys are all alike. You know, it's like, whoa. And then it's like, wow, the Lord really confirmed to me I shouldn't have gave them that because their hearts weren't right in the, in the whole issue. Well, it was the same thing with these guys. As soon as the Jews said, no, we don't want you helping us, man, they became their enemies, and they were opposing them. And uh, it wasn't too long before Cyrus, king of Persia, died in battle, and his successors, the kings that followed him, they would get, they would get letters sent to him by the people in the land, the, the adversaries of the Jews, and they would mislead them and manipulated them to oppose the rebuilding of Jerusalem. One of those kings, Artaxerxes, authorized the opponents to use force to stop the Jews from rebuilding the temple. So the returning captives, 
They had started rebuilding the temple. I mean, everything was going good at first, but two years into it, because of the opposition, they stopped working on the temple. And 14 years would pass. And it's at this time, at that point, was when the Lord raised up Haggai, which we're going to read now, to encourage Israel. You know, the interesting thing, before we get into this, I want to just give you guys just a clear understanding. This book is not like the pre-exile prophecies. The pre-exile prophecies, those books were written to an idolatrous, rebellious, refusing, hard-hearted group of people. That's not what this prophecy is too. These people were not steeped in rebellion and idolatry. This is not a book of judgment against God's people. These were good people. Think about it. These were the 50,000, the remnant of Jews that were said, you know what, we want to go back, we want to honor the Lord, we want to rebuild the temple and worship him the way he wants to be worshipped. They were good people. They had good motives. They went to do a good thing. They wanted to honor the Lord. They started out well. They had good intentions. They had good actions. They had a good heart. But they grew discouraged and they stopped rebuilding the temple. And so after 14 years had passed, in September 520 A.D. is when this takes place here in verse, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the second year of King Darius, I'm reading here in Haggai 1.1, in the second year of King Darius in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the, king, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The first thing the Lord addresses here is what the people were saying. They said, the, t- it's, it, the time has not come that the time's house should be built. What, was real, what were they really saying? Well, it really was an excuse. They were giving an excuse. It wasn't a timing issue. They just felt guilty for stopping the work. And so they gave an excuse. Their excuse sounded spiritual. They didn't say, hey, we stopped because we're afraid. I mean, we're being opposed. They didn't stop. They didn't say, hey, we stopped because, man, it's just too hard. Or, you know what, we've been focused on other things like our own remodeling projects. They just say, hey, it just, it's not the right time. It sounds good, doesn't it? Well, verse 3 says, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? And this temple to lie in ruins? In other words, what the Lord is saying, hey, you, don't, you say you don't have time to work, uh, to do the work of the Lord, but man, you have plenty of time to work on stuff of your own, you know, the stuff that you want to do. You think about their reasoning. I mean, after all, they have an altar, right? They, that's the first thing they did. They have an altar to sacrifice on. They go, hey, you know, at least we got an altar. I mean, it's good enough. You know, we can get by like this. It's good enough. So it's just not time to finish the work. This is good enough. Or maybe their reasoning was, hey, I'm in the middle of my own paneling project in my house. I don't have time to work on the things of the temple there. It's just not the right time. Or, hey, man, it's just too hard. That opposition is just, it's too great. It just must not be God's timing. It must not be the right time. And probably all of them thought, hey, I'll get involved later. Of course, later turns into 14 years. Now, of course, this book is about the rebuilding of the second temple in Jerusalem. 
But there's an application for you and I here as well. This book, this deals with an issue that a lot of well-intentioned Christians face. And that's making excuses when our priorities are out of line with the Lord's. Because that's exactly what the issue is here. Their priorities didn't match up with the Lord's priorities. You know, as Christians, sometimes we go, we go you know, I know i got to be a witness at work. I know I, I know I got to reach people for Christ, but you know what? They're too hostile in my environment. It's just not the right time for me to even be a witness. Or, you know, I know the Lord wants me to be involved in ministry, but <laughs> I got to take care of my own stuff first. Later on, I'll get involved. Of course, later on usually turns into never. Or, you know what? Hey, we're getting here, getting by here. The church is good enough the way it is. This, this is good enough. At least we got a place to meet, you know? I like this quote from David Guzik's commentary. He says, Many Christians are like those ancient Hebrews, somehow convincing themselves that economy in, in constructing church buildings is all important, while at the same time sparing no expense in acquiring their own personal luxuries. Well, that was kind of interesting. Or verse 5, So now the Lord responds to them, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. In other words, think carefully about the path you are heading down. Remember, he's not judging them. He's saying, think carefully about the path you're heading down. Look at the direction your choices are taking you. Are your choices and priorities bringing you closer to the Lord, or are they leading you further away from him? And that's a question we all need to face. Verse 6, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. It wasn't like they didn't have anything, right? They had reaped a harvest, but compared to the amount of effort they put in and the amount of seed they invested, man, their harvest was small and was disappointing. They had food to eat and drink, but man, it just seemed like there was just never quite enough. They were still hungry or they were still thirsty. They had clothing to wear, but you know, man, those cold desert nights, it gets pretty cold sometimes. They're just like, I just can't put on enough clothes. I don't have enough clothes to put on to stay warm. They earned an income, and man, we can relate to this, you know, between taxes, between expenses, inflation. Man, it just seems like the count just, it's just, money comes in and it's gone, right? Before you know it, like there's, there's too much week at the end of my paycheck, you know? It's just, I can't, there's never a surplus. What the Lord is pointing out to them is that they were not achieving satisfaction in life. Why? Because they had misplaced priorities. And that will always happen. When our priorities are misplaced, it's going, to, it's going to result in dissatisfaction. You know, the children of Israel, when they were going through the wilderness, man, they kept lusting after the things of Egypt. One time, remember, they were lusting after meat. They were lusting after meat, and God said, okay, I'm going to give you meat. And he get, they got what they wanted. But in Psalm 106.15, it says, He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. In other words, they got what they want, but it came at a price. And for the Jews at Jerusalem... There was dissatisfaction in what they were pursuing because they weren't pursuing what the Lord was. Their priorities were not in line with the Lord. And so verse 7, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Consider your ways. Again, think carefully about the path you're heading down. Look at the direction your choices are taking you. Are your choices and priorities bringing you closer to the Lord, or are they leading you further away from him? Well, the Lord then tells them how they can get off the path they're heading down. How, 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 okay, yeah, my priority is off. What do I do? Verse 8, he says, Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. Now, if you think about it, 16 years had elapsed, right? They started rebuilding. They rebuilt for two years, then they stopped, and then 14 years later. So 16 total years. I wonder what happened to those cedar logs that they had spent all that money on. Remember they hired, they hired people to bring logs from Lebanon, cedar? Did they get used up on the building of the foundation? Maybe. Maybe they got used for paneling their own homes. Who knows? Did they just leave them there laying next to the foundation? And, of course, if you leave wood like that on the exposed elements for 16 years, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rot, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to have dry rot. No matter what, they had to start over with fresh lumber. So the Lord said, hey, go up into the mountains, cut your own logs, and haul them down here and get to work building. That Hebrew word, go up, is elay, and it's a verb that means to go up and ascend, literally, but theologically significant is the fact that this verb is used in relationship to a person's appearance before God. In other words, one must go up to stand before the Lord. So you want to change the direction your priorities are taking you this morning? Are you looking at your life and going, yeah, my, my priorities, my choices have made me drift further from the Lord? What do you need to do? Go up and stand before the Lord. Enter into his presence. Bring back down with you what he gives you there, and then build with it. In other words, apply it. Use it in your life. Put it into practice. You know, going up to where God is, a lot of times we want God to come down to where we are in our situation. Just come down, bless me, and you know. But what we need to do is go up to where God is. And that takes effort. When I was growing up, I lived in South San Jose, and, and of course, San Jose is in a, in a valley there, Silicon Valley, and there's mountains all around or hills all around. And there was, a, there was a park not too far from my house, and it had some peaks, some rolling hills. And there was one peak there called Coyote Peak, and it was kind of a plateau at the top. And I used to, it was about 1,500 feet, so it's not huge, but I used to love climbing up there as a kid because the view up there was great. You get up to the top and you looked one direction, you could see the Santa Cruz Mountains. You couldn't quite see the ocean because the mountains kind of covered the, you know, you couldn't see that far. And if you looked the other direction on a clear day, if there wasn't smog, um, you could actually, you could actually, you couldn't quite see San Francisco because we're about 50 miles south. But you could see, if you're for familiar with the Bay Area, um, in Mountain View, there used to be, a, still is, I think, a Moffett Field um, Naval Air Station. And there they had these humongous blimp hangars. I mean, they're huge. And uh, you could, on a clear day, you could see those hangars from all the way down in South San Jose. And so I, I love to go up there and, climb, and hike up there to do the view. It was awesome, but it took effort to get up there. I mean, it wasn't, it was like, you know, going up, well, it was going up a hill. <laughs> you know what would have been easy to do is to get part way up and say, hey, you know what, the view's good enough from here. I can see, I can see my house over there. You know, it's good enough. But if you really want the good view, man, you got to go up to the top, and it takes effort. It's not easy. And getting away and spending time with the Lord, it takes effort. 
It takes determination to get alone with the, with the Lord. But you know what? The reward is worth it. And, you know, the key here is getting up and being alone with the Lord. Allow, allow him to minister to you as, you as you're spending time communicating with him. And what he reveals to you, man, go back, take it back down with you and start applying it in your life. Verse 9, Haggai says, You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. You know, the Lord is saying, hey, you guys, you know the, 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 the leanness and the, the, the barrenness, all the stuff that's going on? It wasn't just circumstances that were against you. I'm the one that caused it. I'm the one that blew those things away. Why? Because I'm trying to get your attention. Because your priorities are off. Look at verse 10. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. You know, more than once in the Bible, the Word of God tells us, um, uh, that if the, the Lord warned the children of Israel that if they walk away from him, he would make the heavens as brass and the earth as iron? You think about that. What the Lord is telling them here, you know, the heavens have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its fruit. That's basically what he's saying here. You see, when a man or a woman of God loses the correct priorities in their life, the heavens seem to be like brass. You know what it's like. It seems like you don't hear the Lord anymore. You're praying, and it seems like the Lord's not blessing you. You're just, the things are just not satisfying in your life. Uh, the Lord seems distant. It seems like there's a communication breakdown. The heavens are like brass. And the Lord caused a drought, which, of course, resulted in barrenness, lack of fulfillment, or lack of fruitfulness. You know, wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy in the Scriptures. And oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And these were all lacking. So not only is the skies above you, it's like, it's like there's a brass ceiling. I can't communicate with the Lord, but everything I'm doing on this plane down below me, is there's no fruit there either. It's miserable as a, as a child of the Lord to not be in his will. It's miserable. You know, for you and I here this morning, if you're getting nothing out of hearing the word of the Lord anymore, if your devotions seem empty, if it seems like the Lord's not refreshing you anymore, maybe the things that you're focused on, the priorities that you have, you're still not getting any satisfaction from it. Maybe there's a lack of fruitfulness. Joy has left your life. The Spirit doesn't, just doesn't seem to be moving anymore. I'm telling you, it might be a good indicator that you need to consider your ways. Have your choices and priorities brought you closer to the Lord? Or are they leading you further away from him? And that's only a, an answer that you guys, that's a question you, you can only answer yourselves. These people, man, they started out with good intentions to serve the Lord. Remember, they're the remnant of those who stayed behind. They're the remnant out of those who stayed behind. You know, they're the pioneers. They're the guys that are going to go out and they're going to they're rough it for the Lord. But they lost focus. Their priorities shifted. They became fearful the task seemed too hard, and so they gave up and started pursuing other things. And as a result, and their existence in Jerusalem was miserable. 
It wasn't what it seemed like when they first went out there. It was, it was lousy. But Haggai here records a beautiful thing that happened. And this is the best part of this chapter. The word of the Lord sunk in with these guys. They realized that their choices and priorities had led them away from the Lord. And look at verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. See, this is an example of true revival here. Everyone was moved by the words of Haggai, from the leaders down to the common folk. Everyone was. They received Haggai's word as it truly was, the word of the Lord, and they responded in obedience. Verse 13, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke uh, the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Even before they actually started rebuilding, once they, once they changed their hearts, they let the Lord, they, they realized that they, that they had gone off course and they started going in that direction. Once they stepped into faith and in obedience, the Lord reassured them with his promise that he was with them. Notice the Lord didn't say, hey, I'm going to help you finish the temple. He didn't say that. He just said, man, I'm going to be with you. Because you see, that's a lot better than just the one single thing. The, the abiding presence of the Lord is far better than anything any of us could ever ask for or receive. There's so many scriptures that talk, talk about it. Psalm 91.15 He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Isaiah 43.2 When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort ye. And Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples, Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Man, that abiding presence of the Lord, not just in circumstances, but continually, that's what's carried saints down through the ages, through the hardest times and circumstances that life threw at them. That calm reassurance, man, I know the Lord's with me. Man, I, I, he's, I can face anything because God's with me. Verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So the word of the Lord of Haggai, remember the word of the Lord through Haggai that came to Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, and the remnant? It happened in the beginning of this chapter. It was on the first day of the sixth month. Here on the 24th day of the same month, in other words, 23 days later, after 14 years of inactivity and misplaced priority, the people got back to work rebuilding the temple. And they just, they just were able to start back right where they left off. That's a beautiful thing about the Lord. If your and my choices and priorities have taken us far away from the Lord, 
He doesn't say, okay, well, you know, you got you to do this first. and then come, You know, he just said, man, you can come back and just start working. Just pick up where you left off. In fact, you have to pick up where you left off. You, can't, you have to go back to the beginning, basically. Wherever you left off, wherever you drifted from the Lord, he's going to bring you right back to that same place. If he, if he 14 years ago, gave you a, you know, told you, I want you to do this, and you rebelled, and you, know, you went kind of sideways for, for a number of years, when you return, he's going to say, okay, you still, I still want you to do this thing. I still want you to go back here. You get back in there, and man, it's just you're right back in there. God is so good to us. He's so gracious to let us pick up right back where we left off. And it doesn't matter if you've been away from the Lord for 14 days, 14 months, or 14 years. It doesn't matter. The Lord stirred up the spirit of the people through Haggai, his obedient prophet. What a blessing Haggai must have been to the people. You know, I'm sure they were like, man, Haggai, I'm so thankful to the Lord that you came and shared that message with me because, man, it got me right back into the right track again. I'm serving the Lord again. I'm, I'm doing what he wants me to do. The Lord used him at the right time to stir up the people to the good work God had called them to. Man, wouldn't you like to be a Haggai this morning? Stirring up others. You know, Hebrews 10, 24, it says, Let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. You know, we're a body of believers here. Maybe the Lord wants you to use you to stir up someone, to build up someone, or to minister with someone. You might say, well, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not like Haggai. I'm not a prophet. I don't know the gift of prophecy. Listen, each one of us has been given a gift. Each one of us has been given a spiritual gift. If you have a relationship with the Lord this morning, at least one gift. And we're to be using those gifts for the body of Christ. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 4.10, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You might say, well, what are my gifts? Well, 1, Peter, uh, 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, Second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healings, do all speak of tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I'll show you a more excellent way. We've all been given gifts, and we're to use them for the glory of God, to build up one another in the body, And, and I love that with Haggai. He was obedient to what the Lord called him to do, and God used him to stir up people. Now, I, I want to be a Haggai this morning. I pray that you do too. Well, I guess the biggest thing I think we need to examine this morning in the word of the Lord, I think, this morning is for each one of us to consider our ways carefully. Again, this isn't a judgment. This is just a, hey, look at where you're heading. Where are you heading? What are your choices and the priorities that you've made? Are the choices and the things that you've made, are they... Are they bringing you closer to the Lord? If they are, man, amen, go for it. But if the choices and the priorities that you have in your life right now are taking you further away from the Lord, man, this is the word of the Lord. Consider your ways. Why don't you stand up and let's pray. (coughs) Father, I thank you so much, Lord, uh, for your word this morning.
Lord, I know that so many of us, in fact, probably all of us in this room, Lord, when we, when we came to faith in you, when we, when we got our lives, uh, when we started following you, when we uh, surrendered to you, Lord, rededicated our lives, whatever it was, Lord, we were so excited. And, Lord, we were just determined to follow your priorities. And, Lord, for some of us, uh, things have happened, and, Lord, we've, we've drifted. Lord, I thank you for that gentle reminder this morning. Lord, your word says that it doesn't matter how long it's been. It doesn't even matter how far we've drifted, Lord, that we can always come right back to that place of obedience in you. And so, Father, I just pray for my brothers and my sisters this morning. I thank you for each person here this morning. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just take this word of Haggai and would just use it in our lives to produce fruit in our lives as we obey your word, Lord. So we thank you for this morning. I pray your blessing upon your people now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.